Sego, Sego, Glego. We're here today with Mohawk policy analyst Russ Dybel. He's going to be here. Uh, we're going to give it a little bit of background on him. And uh, of course, we're going to get a little bit of insight on his opinion to Bill C-15 and uh, what, how that looks and affects us as Indigenous peoples. Sego, Russ, how are you doing today? Uh, Sego, I'm good. That's good to hear. Um, so we tried to get a hold of each other, finally got finally got a chance to talk. So I just wanted to go a little bit back and, uh, you know, just say how much I really enjoy your work. Um, I try to share it as much as I can. And uh, when I was a teacher in the high school, I would actually uh, bring some of it up and highlight it because um, the way I see education is they need to see it in real time and they need to see the truth. Um, because the stuff that they put in those textbooks, uh, all those different things um, is very inaccurate and or untrue. So <laughs> um, having said that, there's a lot of the different things, like for example, uh, at the tracks, there is misinformation there and twisted words by politicians. And you have a lot of experience dealing with twisted words from politicians, right? Yeah, I do. So why don't you give us a little background? When, when did you start, uh, when did you decide that you needed to do this type of work? Well, first of all, let me say that um, I'm a son of a Mohawk iron worker that, um, you know, worked out of Brooklyn uh, most of his life. My parents met in Brooklyn and, and married there. And, and I was born in uh, Erie, Pennsylvania, which is where my mother's people come from, you know, after coming from England. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, um, because I had a mixed ancestry, I, I, I had, um, you know, grown up um, as, a, as a kid anyway, trying to figure out um, more about who I was. And as I became a teenager, you know, I, I knew I, I was Mohawk on my mother's side. I mean, not sorry, on my father's side. Um, you know, I was more interested in, in who the Mohawks were and who the Haudenosaunee were. Mm -hmm. And um, so there was a group um, traveling group called the White Roots of Peace from Akwazesne that used to travel around. And they came around by Erie when I was there and I, I listened to them. You know, Francis Boots, uh, I think a few of the, you know, the main people who were traveling at that time. And so that's when I started to hear the more about the culture and the songs and the dances and uh, the history. Yeah. And that got me interested more. And um, you know, I guess um, by the time I reached grade 10 in high school, um, I had read this book by Vine Deloria Jr. called Custer Died for Your Sins. Oh yeah, I know that, that um, After reading that book, I was really angry. You know, I had a lot of rage and um, I, I quit high school and um, I was 15 at the time. And I was just um, kind of bumming around in Erie. And then I saw on TV that the takeover of the Bureau of Indian Affairs happened, uh, you know, about a year later. And well, I was 16 uh, in November of 1972. And, um, you know, they showed, showed the people surrounding the outside of the building and everything. So I hitchhiked down to Washington, D.C. And, you know, of course, the building had already been occupied by the time I had gotten there. Yeah. Uh, and there's a whole history behind, you know, how it became occupied and, and why they were there. Yeah. Um, uh, so when I got up there, um, 
they had aimed security, the American Indian Movement uh, security, you know, outside of the building. Mm-hmm. And I came up to them and, you know, they asked me who I was and where I was from and everything. And uh, I told them I was a Mohawk from Ganawage and, you know, I wanted to know more about what, what the occupation was about. So they let me in uh, to the building. And when I got in there, there were, you know, there was graffiti sprayed, painted all over, like the names of different uh, nations, you know, yeah. and uh, papers all over the place, you yeah. know, almost looked like a bomb went off in there. Yeah. And of course, people were milling around all over the place from different uh, nations. Because the way that occupation came about was um, they had, um, it was a trail of broken treaties, it was called. Started out in San Francisco and Los Angeles, and they traveled across the country by caravan and cars uh, with this 20 point position paper, you know, demanding that the treaties be respected and everything, and, and the conditions yeah. on, on the reservations, you know, be addressed. And in those 20 points, um, they were coming there to present that to the, the government of Richard Nixon, who was the president at the time. And they just had the election where he was just reelected. So this is before Watergate and everything came out. Um, and of course, um, they had an advanced team and they were supposed to be finding uh, housing for everybody okay. uh, you know, to billet them in Washington, DC, you know, so that they could lobby the government or present the 20 point position paper to the government officials. And um, somehow they hadn't, you know, they were working with the churches, somehow they hadn't found a place for people to stay. So when the caravans arrived in Washington, D.C., they gathered at the Bureau of Indian Affairs building in this big auditorium, uh, from what I understand, because I wasn't there. This all happened before I got there. And um, it was almost like, okay, well, you're not going to give us a place to stay. We'll find one then. Well, it, it didn't kind of, it, it kind of happened like that, but what happened was the Bureau of Indian Affairs officials told them to go into a federal building across the street to another building to wait and that they were going to look into seeing about finding them a place to stay. Okay. Some of the people went, left the building and were going out across there. And as they were crossing the street, again, this is what I was told. You know, when I got there, people told me what happened. Yeah. Um, they saw security guards locking the doors of the building that they were supposed to go in and, you know, barricading them from the inside. Yeah. So they turned around to go back and that's what the police tried to do to them at the BIA building, but there was people still inside the BIA building. Yeah. So then, then there was a scuffle with the police and they, <clears throat> they basically overwhelmed the police and the police fled and they took over the building and barricaded the building. So those people, you know, got back into the building that had left. And uh, that's when they barricaded the building and basically took it over. And, um, you know, that's when they started going through everything uh, in the building. By the time I'd gotten there, like I said, it, it had been, it had happened. They'd been there for- It had been all over They'd already occupied the building, I think, for two, two or three days. Yeah. By the time I got there. But, you know, I, you know, I was learning and, you know, asking what it was about. So they're telling me about the treaties and the conditions on the reservations and stuff. So that started my education, you know? Yeah. What was that like as a first occupation that you had that you were a part of? What was that as uh, like a, was it as in like maybe a turn from um, the need and want to be somewhere to connect with your identity again. And then all of a sudden you're in, in this whole right in the thick of it, (laughs) you know? What was yeah, that? Well, that's it. 
so that's why I was asking people who were on the caravan, you know, what the issues were, right? Yeah. Because I didn't know. So they started telling me where they were from, which nation they were from, about the treaties. There were a lot of Lakota people there, you know, from Pine Ridge. Yeah. You know, actually a lot of them who lived in California, you know, due to the relocation, because the United States had a relocation program to move a lot of uh, yeah. members from the tribes into the, the cities. Yeah. They, they paid them to move to the cities, supposedly to get jobs and stuff, but they, when they wanted to leave, they wouldn't pay for them to go back. So a lot of them wound up living there and having kids there. So there's, you know, third and fourth generation families yeah. that have grown up in, in these cities now who have yeah. connections back home to the reservations, but, you know, they wound up living in the cities. So some of them were involved. And, um, you know, at night, everybody was sleeping on the floor. So I found a room in the basement with these guys from Pine Ridge, they said I could sleep on the floor there too. So that's yeah. what I did. So, you know, um, I remember one of my I, first And then the next day, you know, I didn't really have anything to do. They said, well, go stand outside and be part of the, the security outside to keep an eye on things. So I went yeah. outside and all you do is stand around, but then you start noticing snipers on the buildings above, yeah. around the building and police in the street. And then you start realizing there's a big, police presence around outside. Anyways, after a while, they told me I could go back in. And at one point, um, they said, come on, we need you to help load a truck. And they had a loading bay in that building. And it was a you know, big, big loading bay for trucks to back up to the building. And they were loading up this huge truck with boxes of uh, documents. <laughs> and then <laughs> the police gave that, that truck um, uh, an escort out of the city. They didn't oh. stop it and check it or anything. Holy! And, uh, there were a whole bunch of BIA documents in that truck. That's super shady. <laughs> yeah, and um, and then later on, it turns out, you know, I'd read later that um, an activist named Hank Adams from Washington State, a big fishing rights activist, uh, he just died recently. He was a, a big um, a big leader in the in the movement uh, for decades. You know, he just passed away, I'm thinking, two weeks ago or so. Condolences that was a big loss, you know, his, his passing. But he helped negotiate the return of, um, of the documents uh, back to the BIA. You know, he was kind of an intermediary between the American Indian movement and the federal government uh, after they probably photocopied them, right? Got to make the copies exactly. first, right? <laughs> well, I'm just assuming that, you know, they wouldn't just hand them back over without going through them and reading them and keeping the key ones, the copies, yeah. you know? Because yeah, he did sure. have photocopiers back in that day. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, yeah. so that was my first experience. And, you know, Richard Nixon wanted to get all the Indians out of Washington, D.C. as, as quickly as possible. Yeah. So uh, somehow those, the AIM leaders, Russell Means and Dennis Banks and them, you know, they negotiated. Um, I just remember them announcing in the auditorium, everybody write down on a paper where you came from. Oh. Because you know, you're going to get money to go back home. Um, and a guy, all I know is a guy with a suit came in with a briefcase full of money. He opened it up, it was full of money. And all you had to do is, you know, I could have said I was from San Francisco. Yeah. <laughs> and got the money to, you know, the equivalent of whatever they were paying out. But yeah. again, I didn't feel like that was the right thing to do. I didn't know anything, but I didn't feel like, you know, getting paid off to leave was a good thing. So I didn't take any of the money. A lot yeah. of people lined up because they wanted to go back home and they needed the money. Um, yeah. 
but what I did, what I wound up doing was getting a ride with somebody who was there from going back to um, New York City, and I got a ride back to Brooklyn to see my dad to talk about it all. He oh, wasn't too impressed, you know. No. <laughs> well, he was an iron worker, right? He, kind of a conservative guy, and he didn't he didn't think too much of the American Indian movement, uh, right? Like takeover, right? He was kind of a conservative guy, and yeah. Um, so he wasn't too impressed. He just told me to go see my grandmother. And that's what I did. I, I went to see this. And then she was proud, probably. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's that's when I started learning more about you know my identity and, and family and history. And that was um, going to my my father's uh, mother, my grandmother. And um, that's beautiful. Well, that's really interesting too, the way that um, you know how it came about, how you came into that, because I feel like there's a lot of um, indigenous people, not just Mohawks, but indigenous people across Turtle Island that have that identity struggle while they're younger. Um, just because of the fact that they've been displaced or they've been moved around or they haven't necessarily lived in their own communities and just all kinds of different various reasons that are... Well, I had, I had lived in Nahuagi as a kid, but my parents, you know, uh, separated. Um, so yeah, I do so have memories of living in Nahuagi as a child. Um, yeah, but then there's... Because the same with me, I lived in Tyndanega for like maybe a little bit and then I moved away and then I came back and then, you know, started up... Um, but I had the same kind of experience you did when, uh, when uh, in Caledonia, Gunnostado. My first experience was laying there on a plank sheet in the basement, just waiting, and then coming out and seeing the whole lineup of food lines, and then seeing the front line, and and then uh, listening to everybody talk, and all those different things. It just, um, it's powerful. Yeah, it's it a is. powerful thing. Well, it's always and, stayed uh, with me, and and I've always had an interest in trying to make sense of this world I was born into, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, ever since I was a teenager, I was trying to figure it out. So it was, it wasn't just my identity. It was also trying to figure out uh, what was happening in, in this world. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And that's, it's always best to, uh, you know, try to try to reach out and try to navigate the world and try to understand it yourself rather than trying to, uh, to depend too much on other people. Because when you're trying to go out and understand yourself, then you're actually going to find out what the truth is, what reality is, and where things lie. And then you can start putting your opinions out to other people. I think that's a well, great way that's, to That's why I started out. <laughs> yeah, I was started out being interested in history and culture. Yeah. That's, what, that's where my interest really started. Um, and, um, you know, it was my grandmother that took me to go get my status card um, for border crossing, you know um because she wasn't a longhouse so you know she wasn't she wasn't part of passports or anything right but she wanted to make sure i had identification you know about who i was as a mohawk and that i had a right to cross the border so that i could come and visit her more right because i was living on the american side at the time right and um and then another year later not even a year just a few months later um the occupational wounded knee happened in South Dakota. Uh, a lot of the same people that were in Washington, D.C., that's where they were from, was from Pine Ridge. Yeah. Um, and again, I was watching that on TV, you know, with the, the armed standoff and the FBI and the U.S. Marshals. And, and it was showing for a while there, they were allowing the media to go into wounded knee to talk to um, the people inside the village, you know. Yeah. And um, then they were getting too much support on the Indian side. So the US government cut off access of the media. No. So then, 
And then the news reports came about saying, you know, it was reported today that an wounded knee negotiations were going on, you know, and, and you know, naming Russell Means and Dennis Banks and the federal officials, you know, that had been named to, yeah. by the Nixon government to negotiate. And so I wanted to know more what was going on because the visuals are gone on TV, right? They right. Got the media on. So again, I hitchhiked across the country, which was pretty far. You know, I was 17. Yeah. And this was in the winter. I think I think I got there just before Easter. So it had to be around March or so. Um, somewhere in there, March, April. And um, yeah, so I made it through. I, I hitchhiked across U.S. through South Dakota, came down from up around Rapid City South into a town called Gordon, Nebraska. Really racist town, a border town to Pine Ridge. And uh, I remember seeing signs in the window saying no Indians and no dogs allowed kind of thing, you know. That's the kind of place it was. Then. And I think it's still like that today, but it's a real wow. racist uh, place. Anyway, um, I found out the reservation was north of that town, so I started walking. And that's also where a lot of the Indians went to go get beer, right? Because right. on the reservation, you couldn't buy alcohol. You had to go up yeah. to the border towns. So this carload of Indians stopped and said, are you going to the knee? And I said, yes. And they said, get in, we'll take you. And then they stopped on this road and they pointed down a hill at a, a farm it was on the reservation and they said, go see that guy, he's gonna take you in. So I go down the hill, so I was lucky, right? None of the police stopped me hitchhiking or anything. And I heard stories of them nabbing a bunch of people. Oh yeah. But I guess the creator was with me, I didn't get stopped. So I go down the hill to that um, that farm area there, like the, the barn and the house and all that, you know, into the yard. And um, a guy comes out and says, okay, you know, get in the barn. So I go in the barn and there's, I don't know, a couple dozen people, maybe more uh, waiting around in there. And he said, we're not gonna go in until the night, right? Under the cover of uh, darkness. And you gotta carry a pack in, they said. <laughs> Everybody had to take a pack of supplies in, like a backpack. Yeah. So they loaded me up, by, I don't know, I must have been 80, 90 pounds they put in there. And I had to haul that in. And um, yeah, when it got dark, the guy rounded us up and started us walking. And I guess, I don't know how many miles we were, we're a few miles away. <clears throat> I don't know how many miles it was, but we basically walked all night. And we had to walk, it's very hilly there. And uh, we had to walk in the valley parts so that because there were US Marshals with starlight scopes and FBI, yeah, yeah. you know, watching at night on yeah. horseback and with armored <laughs> armored personnel carriers. Wow. <laughs> Excuse me. And um, so it was like they were- the locals knew where to go, right? They, they knew the area. Yeah. So, so they knew how to get into Wounded Knee without being seen. So they, they let us in and um, we got in there, you know, just before dawn. And um, they wound up telling me inside, you know, there was a big white church that was, you know, in the old pictures, you'll see a white church um, up on the hill there in Wounded Knee. It's burned down now, but it, it was there at the time. And they told me that I was asleep in there on one of the pews. Eh? Oh, yeah. So that's where I was assigned to sleep. Um, and uh, in the morning, you could see the area that we came through came in 
right between two armored personnel carriers, which were on hills. We came right up in the middle of them. Into so that was perfect how you had that that uh, path right through the valleys, huh? Yeah, <laughs> well, good. it's good that we had locals that were leading us because they knew yeah. where to take us, and and they would stop and listen, right? They were good trackers too, right? See, that's the thing that the uh, feds always forget when they wage war against any indigenous nation is that we know that land. Where yeah. when we're from that land, we know that land, and we've always known that land, no matter how much they think they do. <laughs> and and in fact. Um, a lot of the guys in the, there were bunkers all around Wounded Knee where guys were, and most of the guys in there were uh, Vietnam veterans. Yeah. And um, so they knew what they were doing, right? They were yeah. the ones that, that were holding off the um, US Marshals and the FBI, you know, uh, with weapons. Yeah. <clears throat> but, um, but the US Marshals had 50 caliber machine guns mounted on, on those armored personnel carriers. Yeah. And um, I was inside for about a week, you know, because I wanted to see what was going on. And uh, every night, Russell Means and Dennis Banks would hold like a, I guess you could call it a community meeting, although there was a lot of transient people in Wounded Knee at the time, people yeah. coming and going, right? Yeah. And um, they would give an update on their negotiations with the government, because during the day, they'd be meeting with the government in a teepee, just, uh, you know, off-site, uh, where they would be trying to negotiate, you know, basically getting the issues on the Pine Ridge Reservation resolved, because that's what the, that was about, was Dick Wilson, this corrupt tribal uh, chairman, uh, working with the federal government and repressing the traditional people in uh, the Oglalas and uh, uh, Pine Ridge. So um, they were trying to negotiate to resolve all that, uh, including the, you know, the poverty on the reservation and stuff. So at night they'd come and report to us on what's going on. And, um, you know, I'd say there'd been about 300 people there, you know, yeah. in, in the meetings. During the day you wouldn't see them because everybody would be scattering, staying in different places and different buildings or in bunkers or whatever, right? But at night they would come out and listen to the update on what was going on with the negotiations. Because people wanted to know how it was going to end, right? Yeah. Um, and, um, when I wasn't, they gave me a bunker to stay in and it was close to that church. I wasn't in like the front line, <laughs> in the back. <laughs> yeah. um, they just gave me that for something to do, I guess. Yeah. And, uh, and, um, and years later, this, um, this uh, Korea veteran, he was, you know, I ran into him in Kamloops, BC at a meeting um, just four or five years ago. Yeah. I told him I was at Wounded Knee too, because he said he, in the meeting he was at Wounded Knee. So after the meeting, I went up to him and said, um, I was there too. And he said, really? He said, what squad were you? And I looked at him and I said, what? They had squads? Because <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't part of that. I was right. a 17-year-old kid, right? <laughs> yeah, they had their whole setup and communication. Oh, yeah, it was all the, so. the veterans, right? It was yeah. the veterans. So they would have had that. So. Yeah. They wouldn't have that kind of communication, but that's amazing though, you know? To... And and so when I wasn't in the bunker and didn't have anything to do, I'd go hang around um, the main radio room, you know, where they'd be in communications with the bunkers. You know, you'd hear all yeah. the walkie-talkie chatter, right? And that's what I would yeah. listen to and try and figure out what's going on. And they'd talk in code too. I wouldn't know all the code. I'd have to ask the, the radio operator, you know, what do they mean? And they'd, they'd tell me. Yeah. Um, in fact, there's a there's an audio um, you can get about the sounds of Wounded Knee, 
and oh, yeah? it's one of the guys that was there that had recorded a lot of that stuff so you can actually hear the firefights and you can hear the chatter on the, the walkie-talkies and stuff on an audio tape that he made yeah definitely it brought me back it brought me back to root to being there you know yeah, listening no to that yeah absolutely and um it's the way that everything develops and you mentioned how uh the repression of the traditional peoples um that's ongoing and it's yeah. something that it's it, they call they call us an indian problem not just in the united states but in canada as well and uh it's ongoing genocide and they do it through legislation piece after legislation piece they have the indian act and then they had the bill c51 and now they have c15 like can you give us a little bit of your opinion on what that means for Indigenous people, specifically the ones that follow the traditional um, governance systems? Well, I think the, you know, the, sorry. Okay. The clearest, um, the clearest um, examples that we've seen, um, certainly within the Haudenosaunee, uh, would be like Ganyange, right? When people yeah. from Ganawagi went into what's now New York State, uh, Eagle Lake, and occupied land there um, to reestablish, you know, our, our homeland, Ganyange. And um, they wound up negotiating with the New York State government to move to a place by Altoona, New York, which they're still at today. There's still a, a Mohawk community there, Ganyange, uh, at Altoona. And um, <clears throat> they, um, I haven't been there in years, but I did go there, uh, you know, uh, years later after they, they had taken over and people, you know, were farming and, and um, you know, trying to, to turn it into a real Haudenosaunee community, right? Yeah. And um, so, so that was because there was conflict between the band council in, in Ganawage and, uh, and the traditional people. Yeah. Um, a more recent example we've seen is with the Wet'suwet'en, right? Yeah. The Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs versus the Indian Act chiefs in their nation. Yeah. And the conflict over who, who has, you know, basically inherent jurisdiction over the territory. And um, even the Supreme Court of Canada recognized that the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs um had the authority over the territory you know their their houses as they called them mm -hmm. um our clans and um but that that court case called delgamok in 1997 the supreme court of canada stopped short of recognizing they had aboriginal title yeah they recognized they had a hereditary system of government you know and that they had uh, the responsibility for the traditional territory not the indian act chiefs Mm -hmm. but they but they they laid out a test for proving aboriginal title rather than recognizing they had it uh, and, and they'd spent all their money on the first court case so they couldn't afford to go back to court on the second case under this new legal test yeah and so the government you know in all those years never, never negotiated with them and so <laughs> so you know they were raided um 2019 right that's when they first sent in um, basically a militarized police force. Yeah. And, um, you know, it was again to remove them from the, the uh, route of the coastal gas link pipeline. Mm -hmm. And then again, they went in there in 2020 
to do the same thing, right? Yeah. And and heavily militarized, and they did physically remove them. Um, and right away, I wasn't surprised when I saw it was Haudenosaunee that came to support them right away because the Haudenosaunee recognized the traditional government when they saw it. Yep. And um, so, you know, when I saw Tyendinaga, you know, move next to the tracks and yep. Ganawage actually block uh, one of the, the smaller railroads that ran through Ganawage because Ganawage is overrun with all kinds of right-of-ways, you know, that they never consented to, including yep. the seaway, right? Right. Um, and then, um, yeah, I wasn't surprised to see that. Yeah, um, it, it's 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 funny too. Is uh, the when we notice something as Haudenosaunee as Dinikahaga people and uh, as keepers of the Eastern Door specifically, when we see something, we know what actions to take. You know, it's it's not retaliation. It's not ever anything that means to be of a negative impact. It's always something that's supportive of somebody else. It's always. Well, like, we're also we're also familiar about police repression and some of that, right? So exactly. I don't know that if you helped have... put, that helped put the pressure on the government to to back off uh, somewhat Absolutely. in that situation. Although it didn't stop them from being removed. And then we had people right there too to show that the tracks were never blocked. That yeah, did, I, I saw that. Yeah, so that there were all these lies that were being perpetuated where we could just instantly knock them down, you know, say, no, that's not what's happening. Look at this is what's really happening, you know, and uh, I think that's really important. Well, <laughs> every time they see that warrior flag now, they uh, they get scared. Yeah. Right. You didn't even have to block the tracks. You just had to put the, the flag on the truck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, did, yeah, it was just a fire by the tracks at first and then. Then they shut everything down. So we said, all right, well, if you have it shut down, we're going to tie our flag right here. <laughs> so, well, it's the uncertainty, right? It's yeah. the uncertainty of what, what was going to be done next. That's what they were afraid of. Yeah, absolutely. Because they don't know, right? They can't predict what we're going to do next. <laughs> right. And then after Harper's Lago went through way back then, now they want to charge us as all this and that and kind of different terrorism or this and that. So I think that's uh, a kind of... Uh, hypocritical when you think about it because even back uh when they were invading Landback lane when the opp were invading Landback lane a little while ago um the mayor caledonia can he he said well they can't just go on to land and take it <laughs> did, did, did you see that yeah i saw that when he said but, that i thought that was a little bit ridiculous well i mean canada is a settler state you know um yeah. and um the thing you have to recognize, you started out talking about governments using words, you know, as trickery. Yeah. Um, they're basically good at co-opting terminology that we come up with. Like even the yeah. term First Nations, you know, that was uh, people on our side that came up with that term in the 1980s. Yeah. Uh, and the reason why they came up with that term was because Canada was arguing that, that it was founded on the two founding nations, the French and the English. Um, I'm getting um, some feedback. And um, so they came up with the term First Nations because they said we were the First Nations that were here, not, not the French or the English. And so that's when um, 
you know, the organization, the National Indian Brotherhood, changed its name to the Assembly of First Nations. Um, I'm just going to turn mine to this, so see if it'll help the uh, feedback at all. Okay, go ahead. So that's where the term First Nations. That's where the term First Nations came from. Okay. And, um, and, and then another example I'll give you is the inherent right to self-government. You know, that was something that was argued about in the, uh, during the constitutional talks in the 1980s. Um, the national Aboriginal organizations kept arguing that we have um, the inherent right to self-government and the, you know, the prime minister of Canada and the premiers of Canada were arguing, no, you have to first negotiate an agreement with us and then we'll recognize you have self-government. And they danced around that. But you, they said you have a contingent or a conditional right to self-government depending on reaching an agreement with us. Because self-government became the central issue in those constitutional talks, whether it was inherent or it's a conditional. And um, they ran the clock out on those talks and they didn't, um, those talks ended in failure. Because originally section 35 of Canada's constitution was supposed to be a political agreement, you know, on what the meaning right. of Aboriginal treaty rights means in the constitution. Um, right. But then it boiled down to arguing about self-government, you know, whether it was an inherent right or, or you know, conditional right based on reaching agreements. And, and that's uh, another thing too, self-government there's also there's self-government then they talk about self-determination well right? they're what trying they, to equate self-government to self-determination but that's not the case those are two different things exactly and they're trying to push that the the same that it's the same idea and it's truly not right well um, let's let me let me get to that um so jean Chrétien in 1995 he imposed uh an inherent right policy, uh, which is basically an Aboriginal self-government policy without any meaningful consultation. And um, that policy is still in place today. It hasn't been replaced. That's the uh, overall policy that's, you know, behind every discussion table or every negotiation table is based on that policy. And Although they say they recognize the inherent right to self-government, they define the inherent right, they limit it in their policy. And they wanna get consent of um, groups to consent to their preconditions to rec being recognized, having you know self-government uh, through those negotiations. And some groups have settled under that uh, policy, You know, they've compromised the rights and made agreements under it. Hundreds of others are in negotiation tables right now, um, you know, uh, that are basically, that's the government's intent is to get them to sign an agreement consistent with their self-government policy, which defines, you know, the Section 35 Aboriginal treaty rights. They want groups with historic treaties to implement their treaties through self-government agreements. And um, when Trudeau came in, you know, when he was elected in in 2015, he had a platform he ran on. He said that there was going to be a new nation-to-nation -nation relationship uh, for reconciliation. And he even <laughs> talked about decolonizing Canada's laws and policies. But what he did is he co-opted all those terms. 
you know, nation to nation has wound up being this top-down process using the national indigenous organizations like the Assembly of First Nations and uh, the Métis National Council and the Inuit Tepers at Kanitami and the three leaders of those organizations. You know, you see him doing press conferences and he always has those three, uh, three leaders in the background. And uh, even the announcement when the Minister of Justice announced uh, Bill C-15, he had the three leaders involved in his press conference supporting Bill C-15. So, you know, they, they, um, they're good at what, what a public relations firm um, uh, told them to do. We've, we've seen the documentation for this. A yep. public relations firm advised them that they have to have special words and tactics, a SWAT strategy, in order to control the dialogue to make the government appear reasonable and uh, indigenous uh, groups appear unreasonable. Right. And of course, so, Corporation Canada does need a PR firm, right? <laughs> yeah, it, I think it was uh, um, Continental Goal and Harris was the company that came up with that uh, term for them. Uh, SWAT, Special Words and Tactics. And is basically, there... they said that the minister had to have a SWAT team around him to respond to instantaneous communications, to respond to any press releases or communications, you know, that an Indigenous group may, may uh, say. So they have a sophisticated communication strategy. You know, it is propaganda. They use uh, terminology to make it sound really good. They did that in their, their 2015 election platform. What, our, what, our, what a lot of our people don't understand is when a political party puts out a political platform and makes all these promises, um, when they form the government, they hand that platform over to the bureaucracy. And it's the bureaucracy's job is to in, interpret the promises into a plan. And in this case, when, when uh, Trudeau became the prime minister and formed the government, in January of 2016, uh, he named as the top bureaucrat in Ottawa, the top federal bureaucrat, it's called clerk of the Privy Council. That's the top job in Ottawa okay. for the bureaucrats. And uh, the, he named Michael Warnick as the clerk of the Privy Council. And who's Michael Warnick? Well, he was deputy minister for almost 10 years uh, at Indian Affairs for Stephen Harper. Oh, my. <laughs> so he's the guy that did all the dirty tricks, the hotspot uh, campaign, spying on, on First Nation communities, uh, spying on Cindy Blackstock for her human rights complaints against Canada. Oh, my uh, God. He, he was involved in all of that. And so he's the guy that um, um, basically worked on what became Trudeau's rights recognition framework that he said he wanted to um, introduce into a law. And that oh, yeah. all came out during the SNC-Lavalin uh, uh, hearings in Parliament. He, he came out, Wernick came out in his testimony and he said, I had to get involved because the Prime Minister's office was preoccupied with the North American Free Trade Agreement negotiations with the United States. <laughs> so I had to get involved in the framework, he said. And uh, the reason he had to get involved is because there was a fight between Jody Wilson-Raybould, the Minister of Justice, and Carolyn Bennett, the Crown Indigenous Relations Minister, over right. what, what the framework should look like, you know, the framework, the rights recognition framework. And, um, you know, Warnick intervened in that fight. And I'm sure he must have advised Trudeau to back uh, Carolyn Bennett, because in the end, they sidelined Jody Wilson-Raybould 
Right. And they demoted her to um, Veterans Affairs, and then she quit after that. Right. But no meanwhile, problem. Caroline Bennett's been the minister right from the beginning in 2015 because it's her job to implement this national uh, termination plan, as I call it. Yeah. Um, to get these agreements, you know, there's three ways out of the Indian Act that uh, the Trudeau government has come up with. One is you can get into modern treaties. But that's only in areas where you don't have historic land treaties. So that would be like British Columbia, uh, Quebec, parts of Ontario, like that so-called Algonquins of Ontario negotiations yep. for the Ottawa Valley and um, and the Atlantic, the five provinces in the Atlantic, because like the Mohawks, um, um, they have a peace and friendship treaty in the Atlantic. It, it didn't have to do with the land other right. than recognizing they had land rights. And uh, there were treaties from 1760, peace and friendship treaties signed with what was called the Seven Nations Confederacy. Right. And I know this gets a little touchy for some Haudenosaunee because, you know, um, yeah. you know it kind of involves the, um, the communities, you know, where the, um, the Jesuits were. And right. they were the French allies. Right. You know? And um, what the first treaty in 1760 was, was asking the Seven Nations Confederacy to remain neutral because they controlled the waterways. The British met with them and asked them to stay neutral when they marched on Montreal. And the nations did. And uh, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, you know, threatened to fight the Seven Nations Confederacy because they were allied with the British, right? Right. And um, so after the French were defeated in Montreal in 1760, there was a Treaty of Ganawage in 1760, another piece of friendship treaty. And that's where um, the, the former French allies agreed to become allies and friends of the British. And of course, that meant with the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, the rift that was there was settled, right? Right. And then that all led into the Royal Proclamation of 1763. Um, and it was... Um, Pontiac, the Odawa chief that didn't trust the British. And he burned down 10 of the 12 forts in the Great Lakes. Right. And a lot of people say that's what led to the Royal Proclamation of 1763 was Pontiac's war. Yeah. Because um, a big part of the Royal Proclamation was promising that there wouldn't be any trespassing by settlers on, on uh, Indian lands. Right. And, uh, and then that led to the, the Treaty of Niagara in 1764, which is really important because that set the framework on how the treaty making process would work between Indian nations and the crown, right? British. Right. And of course, shortly after that was when, uh, you know, the fighting with the Americans and the British started uh, in the American Revolutionary War. And it's my understanding the the Grand Council of the Confederacy never took sides. They, they said they'd stay neutral in that fight because some of our people supported the Americans and some of our people supported the British. Right. And um, so I guess basically the rules of engagement were you can kill white people, but don't kill each other when you're out right. on the battlefield, right? Yeah. If you're fighting for the Americans or for the British, right? Right. But we know the history, right? It was that the Americans basically burned the Haudenosaunee villages down yeah. and that led to a lot of our people moving into what's now Six Nations and, and Tyndanega. Right. Uh, there's a history to that. Yeah. And, and of course Joseph Brandt played a big uh, role in all that too, right? Uh, being an ally of the British. And um, But Ganawage uh, and Akwazasne really weren't part of that history. No. 
they have we their had own. a different history of, with that Seven Nations Confederacy. But like I said, you know, due to the, the treaties of peace and friendship in the 1760, that's when, you know, the Confederacies came together to be allies of the British. Right. And that Treaty of Niagara is something we don't talk about enough. I think we need to, to talk about that. Because uh, everybody talks about the two-row wampum, but the two-row wampum, um, you know, became known as the covenant chain. Right. And it was symbolized at one point of like um, a ship with a, a rope tied to a tree. I don't right. know if you've ever seen that symbol. I haven't seen that one, though. Yeah. So that was kind of before the symbol of the chain came about. That was one of the symbols that was used to signify that relationship. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, the two row became the covenant chain and, you know, polishing the chain every so often to renew the relationship. Yeah. And um, that's what we haven't resolved, you know, with, um, you, you know, you were talking about the traditional governments a while ago. Uh, to me, um, you know, when the RCMP were used to padlock the longhouses and shut yeah. everything down, and then they amended the Indian Act in 1928 to make it illegal for Indians to, um, you know, to um, hold meetings or hold ceremonies. Right. Um, and they forced the elective system into the, the Haudenosaunee communities. You know, and when I say forced, I mean forced. I you think say they that. shot Jake Fire at Akwazasne to, to get it set up there. I just had uh, somebody tell me a story about that. The RCMP actually, uh, one of the chiefs here passed away. Uh, back there in the in the 20s 1920s and then the rcmp forced their way in they uh stole the wampum belts and uh never never brought them back well during that time period the rcmp confiscate confiscated a lot of the material culture related to ceremonies you know medicine masks wampum belts uh, but they just didn't do it to the haudenosaunee they did it right across the country exactly that amendment to the Indian Act, not only did they make it illegal for Indians to hold meetings or, uh, or um, ceremonies, so they all had to go underground, you know? Yep. It didn't mean everything stopped. It just meant you had to hide out from the Indian agents and make sure they didn't find out you were holding a ceremony or a meeting, right? Yeah. And, um, and even in BC, they went into their big houses out there and took their masks and everything too, because the ceremonies are tied to governance, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, so if you can stop the ceremonies, you can stop the traditional governance practices that's right. and go and force them into the Indian Act elective system. That's what they wanted. Exactly, and that's that's something that I uh, say all the time too to people that don't necessarily understand Ganyagahaga or Haudenosaunee people in general, is that our culture and our ceremonies and our politics are all intertwined. They're all one and the same yeah. thing. But uh, you know, I think that's true of all Indigenous nations. I don't think they made distinctions. No, that's it's between our all. spiritualism and our, our political life. Yeah, that's what I mean. Is like all across the board, um, across Turtle Island, all of our nations, we're all like that. We all hold those things dear because it's every day we live to uh, see the next seven generations benefit. Well, that's why I think the again the with the Witsuit situation resonated with Haudenosaunee uh, because of the parallels. And right. um, uh, we could feel their pain almost, you know. Yeah, yeah. But that's that's an outstanding issue in the Haudenosaunee communities on governance because although the Confederacy uh, system is still there in parallel to the Indian Act elective systems, 
the Indian Act um, band councils have really dominated the communities because that's where the programs and services come from. Um, that's who the government recognizes, right? And funds. Yep. And um, somehow we have to talk about how do you reconcile that? Because to me, one way to reconcile it would be that the Confederacy be recognized as the governance system and those band offices be recognized as administrative arms or something, you know, to deliver programs and services. Exactly. We're a long ways from getting consensus on how to move from here to there. Yeah, because uh, even for our own people, we've, it's the, our traditional way of life has been so demonized and, uh, you know, taken into this, you can only, you can only have been traditional if it was maybe 200 years, 300 years ago, you can't be traditional anymore. It's kind of the mindset that those uh, colonial things have kind of beaten into us as people, you know, that, um, that generational trauma there. So people are almost kind of afraid. They want to. They want to move on. They want to keep on going forward. They want their stuff, but they're afraid of what it's going to look like. What's it going to turn into? You know. Well, I know in Ganawagi, you know, we have more than one longhouse now. Yeah. Uh, when I was growing up, we only had the 207 longhouse. Now we have the up the trail longhouse. And um, you know, a lot of it has to do with the handsome lake um, beliefs. That was a terror. <laughs> so I mean, you know, there's. There's that too. We have differences of opinion about what is traditional law, right? Right. Um, so those are the things that have come into it now. It's almost like um, denominations, right? Yeah. You know, like different religious denominations. Yeah. But, um, you know, somehow this decision-making process of the people is a principle that I believe in. And of course, we have our protocols uh, in the longhouse on how, how you know, you organize through clans and make decisions through clans. And the people have, the people's voice is heard, right? Yeah. Um, like I say, all indigenous communities have their own <clears throat> pre-Indian Act systems of where the people are involved in the decision making. But once the Indian Act was imposed, then it became a band council system and band council resolutions as a form of decision making that the government recognized. Right. And that's the problem is um, the Indian Act is still in place and they're, they're keeping the Indian Act in place to control and manage us. And what they're doing is they're saying there's three ways out of the Indian Act. Of course, the federal government decided this, right? Right. One way is you can sign a modern treaty. Like I said, those are in areas of British Columbia, the Yukon, Northwest Territories, Quebec, the Atlantic. Um, yeah. For the rest of it, it's a self-government agreement. Um, or you can opt out of the Indian Act into other federal laws, like the First Nations Land Management Act or the First Nations Fiscal Management Act. And I would argue those laws were set up to assimilate um, the communities into Canada's property and tax system. Oh, absolutely. And and it, what, they, what Cretchen did See, I think you have to look at the, the influence that Jean Crenchen had as a politician. He was the Minister of Indian Affairs in 1969 under Pierre Trudeau as Prime Minister when they was, came up with the white paper on Indian uh, policy. Right. And um, although they said they publicly were withdrawing it privately, there's correspondence showing that they said, okay, we're just going to continue with it privately. Um, it's going to take longer than five years. And instead of talking about it, the plan as a package, we're gonna talk about it in components. 
So for the last 50 years, that's what they've been doing is band by band convincing them to go down that line to fulfill the objectives of the white paper. But Chrétien went on to be the justice minister of the government under Pierre Trudeau when they announced they were going to patriate Canada's constitution from England. <laughs> Canada's first uh, constitution was the British North America Act, which is really the constitution they used to colonize us because section 9124 of that constitution says the federal parliament has exclusive legislative authority over Indians and lands reserved for Indians. Right. So it's that constitutional power they used to pass the Indian Act in 1876, right. which they then amended in 1928 to make it illegal for us to meet or hold ceremonies or to hire lawyers, you know, to defend our right. land rights. And it was only until nine, it was that, that was in place until 1951, where they amended the Indian Act again to relax some of those restrictions. Right. So you have a whole generation of people that grew up under that, um, that version of the Indian Act, right? where it was illegal yeah. to hold ceremonies or to meet and, and they confiscated our material culture, like, like you were saying. Yeah, so, even, even my wife. So the Indian Act is still in place to control and manage us, but they're saying, if you want out, you got to sign an agreement because we're not going to recognize, you know, you have any form of government other than what we decide to recognize under our policy. Exactly. And so that's how they're interpreting section 35 of their new constitution is you have to sign an agreement with them on self-government to recognize your so-called inherent right. But they're defining what the inherent right is in that policy. So it's not the inherent right. Um, you know, that's what I mean about special words and tactics, right? They cooperate. The they empty our terms of meaning by putting a policy to it that they came up with. And um, so either can go into a self-government agreement, Ty and Danega can go into a self-government agreement or Ty and Danaga can opt out of the Indian Act by going into the First Nations Land Management Act or the um, First Nations Fiscal Management Act um, and start applying tax on reserve and stuff. Because under the self-government policy, it's also includes what they call own source revenue, which is right. code for taxation. Yeah. So those are the two ways out for Ty and Danaga out of the Indian Act. And in not, neither of those options are they talking about recognizing the, the traditional government there. Right. So then they want to try to sneak that in there and call it these fancy words, but really they're... They want to call it self-determination is what they want to call it. Yeah, exactly. And that's but, where Bill C-15 comes in because right. what Bill C-15 is, is um, it's kind of like the, the final nail in the coffin of what the Trudeau government's been doing for the last five years. You know, they... Um, They've made massive changes to policy, law, and the structure of the government using the Assembly of First Nations and the majority of the chiefs that support Perry Bellegarde. Um, you know, they, um, in, in 2017, they came up with these 10 principles for Indigenous relationships, and that just reinforces, um, you know, their, their existing constitution to keep dominating over us, the federal and provincial governments. Yeah. And basically, the only space they're holding for us is to be fourth level governments in the Canadian Federation, <laughs> which means after the federal government, after the provincial governments, after the municipal governments, Indigenous governments would be the fourth level in Canada, either through a self-government agreement or under this alternative federal legislation. So that's their national plan, and they're implementing it band by band through negotiations. So that's what I tell people, you know, I say, how do you terminate an Indigenous nation? You do it band by band. 
yeah. because that's how they're getting away with this. Yeah. Because um, groups, because of money, right? In the end, it comes down to this new fiscal relationship they're imposing. And it's going to be money where they're going to say, okay, we're going to give you more money if you go into a self-government agreement. They call it investments now. It used to be called Indian monies when Parliament approved spending for the reserves yeah. and bands. It used to be called Indian monies. Now they call it investments. Yeah. Uh, there's no fiduciary treaty responsibilities acknowledged because now it's investments. It's a social policy consideration. Investments in a trust of something. <laughs> and, and so this is what I'm saying is they'll invest more money up front, but once they get you signing into those agreements, you know, fiscal relations isn't part of the agreement. They decide how much money you're going to get after you sign a self-government agreement. Right. So that's when the investments start to get cut back later. And, um, you know, that's what a lot of the chief band councils are going along with, the Indianapolis band councils. They're not thinking, you know, ahead, there's no plans. And that's right. why I keep saying, you know, if we want an alternative plan to Ottawa's national plan, their national termination plan, we have to develop our own self-determination plans. Yeah. So that means we have to have the capacities for information management um, in our communities to do research, uh, mapping and planning yeah. because we need to use the technology that governments and corporations are using on us. We need to get our history and culture documented because the courts have placed a burden of proof on us, whether we like it or not. Right. Even if, you know, you know, you look at the people charged at, at um, land back lane, yeah. they're, they're being faced with, um, you know, criminal charges and possibly sentencing. Right. And so whether they like it or not, they should have had their historical evidence lined up to defend, defend themselves, not only in Canada, but internationally at the United Nations. Yeah. So you need to have this information, this historical and culture information, but you also have to have the information about what's happening on your traditional territory. Yeah. So you need GIS computer mapping skills to get information and to put layers of information down on who are the third party interests operating on your lands and stuff. Yeah, like, like I heard in Tyndanega, you guys talking about land illegal land surrenders or what they call specific claims. Yes, yeah. federal government that came up with that term specific claims. Um, but all that should be on a map. I don't know if it's on a map, but it's there should ridiculous. be a computer map where all that stuff's laid out. Yeah, and then the archival historical record of what how that all happened, how those illegal surrenders happened, should be part of the database that yeah, you have true. to be able to back up that you know it is your land and this is how it was stolen kind of thing. Yeah. And then you need to make a plan. This is what I mean. A self-determination plan has to be based on having this information. And you also need to know the value of the lands and resources that you know they've stolen. Uh, and the ones you still have left. Because yeah. one of the things that Art Manuel and I used to talk about is a lot of our people are going into negotiations without knowing the value of the lands that they're negotiating. Right. Not just in economic terms, but in environmental terms for the future generations. That's one of the things that uh, when they came out with this uh, little piece of paper saying the Mohawks Bay Quinney Band Council, elected council came out with this piece of paper saying they'd already negotiated something um, here. This is what money we're going to get, but we're not actually going to get it. And we're not actually getting all of our land back. <laughs> so it was pretty much just a big slap in the face. It was well, uh, the federal, the federal self-government policy comes from a 1973 native claims statement that Pierre Trudeau made. And uh, it was after the Nishka decision in the Supreme Court in BC, the Nishka Nation. Um, 
the Supreme Court was split on the issue of Aboriginal title. Three of the judges said, yes, the Nishka have Aboriginal title. Three of the judges said, um, well, if they had it, they lost it when British Columbia joined Canadian Confederation in, in 1870. And the seventh judge ruled against the Nishka on a technicality saying you should have given notice to the, uh, to the Lieutenant Governor of BC that you were suing them. So they lost on a technicality, but essentially the Supreme Court was split 3-3. And um, that scared uh, Trudeau and his government because up to that point, Trudeau said, you don't really have any rights. But when the Supreme Court split on the issue of Aboriginal title, the James, in Quebec, the James Bay project was being contemplated and the feds are funding that. The feds are contemplating a, a pipeline from the Mackenzie Valley in the Northwest Territories down into Alberta and the feds are funding that. So they had these big mega projects across the north that they were funding and then they freaked out because there weren't treaties in those areas, it was Aboriginal title. So when the Nishka decision said that, Trudeau came out and made a native claim statement in uh, 1973, which created, he said, we're gonna negotiate land claims because it's a land claims uh, statement. He yep. said, we're gonna negotiate comprehensive claims in those areas of Canada where there aren't um, you know, historic land treaties. So that's how come I say British Columbia, the Yukon, Northwest Territories, right. Quebec, the Atlantic, parts of Ontario. Right. Those are the areas where they didn't do land treaties. And then he said, we're going to negotiate specific claims. And those are lawful obligations where there's been an illegal disposition of Indian lands or monies, you know, like trust funds. Yeah. Um, and those are specific claims. So that's where that comes from. And we've never had a say in, uh, in those land times policies. Um, there has been some negotiation with some of the, the Indian Act chiefs on process, but not on policy. And that's why tying in Aga, the policy of the government is, and I know I heard um, you know, um, the Indian Act Council in, in tying in Aga say they don't agree with it, but the government does not give land back, they give money. Right. You have to buy land on a willing seller, willing buying buyer basis to convert that land into reserve land. Right. To the Indian Act, mind you. Yeah, so, of course. So that's that's when Akwazasni settled with the Dundee, that's what they did was they got money, right? The township right. of Dundee. And I know that's a controversial thing over there. A lot of people didn't agree with that, but it happened. People took money. Um, Six Nations has lots of specific claims, right? which they argue going to the billions or maybe trillions and um, depending on how you calculate it. And um, most of the, the thing about the Haudenosaunee communities and these so-called specific claims, the government of Canada took the position up until 1990 that anything that happened before Canada was formed in 1867, Canada isn't responsible for. Those are what <laughs> they call pre-confederation claims. Just when they were ramping up their genocide. <laughs> yeah, and, and if you look at the Haudenosaunee communities, when did they steal most of the lands around the Haudenosaunee communities? It was before exactly. 1867. Right. <laughs> you know, Ganawagi has um, the Seigneury of Sault Ste. Louis, they call a grievance, and it's a big parcel of land um, that was taken from them, you know, from the French regime. And when the British came in, uh, it wasn't returned. And so that's an outstanding uh, issue. But you know that that just goes to show. And Gunasadagi, look at Gunasadagi, right? That's right. all pre-Confederation issues. Uh, Tyndanega, yep. Six Nations. Yep. 
um, all the Haudenosaunee communities, you know, it was, there was a lot of um, things happening after the War of 1812 and um, let's say up to about 1850 when we started to get outnumbered. 1840, 1850s when we became outnumbered in what's yeah. now Quebec and Ontario. And instead of us being military trade and, and military and trade partners or allies, um, we became subjects. Um, right. Because under the um, the uh, Constitution Act, the British North America Act of 1867, Indians and lands reserved for Indians are subject matters to be right. legislated over by the federal parliament. So a lot of our people don't know a lot of this history, you know, because it involves law and politics, right? Right. And so we need to sort that out. Um, we need to be a part of everyday conversation, really. Well, you know, you got the Iroquois caucus, right, which rep represents the band councils. Right. And even they don't co coordinate on this stuff. Each, the thing about being an Indian Act band and a chief and council in a band, you're concerned about your band and you're concerned about getting reelected every two years. Right. Or, you don't have anything in between. You're more concerned about getting back on your seat. <laughs> yeah, that's basically how the Ottawa designed it that way. Right. Right. Although now that you can, you know, if you go into things like the First Nations Education Act, which you have to get the people to agree to, yep. you can extend the, the term for to four years, you know. Right. But, there was you some, know, it's still Ottawa controlling the rules for all of that, right? Right. At the end of the day, it's still uh, the Indian Act band councillors and chiefs. They're still working for that colonial government. And and, and there is no magic bullet. If, if the people don't like the colonial system that we're under, they have to do the work to get out of it. And that exactly. means they have to collect the information, you know, do the mapping and make a plan exactly. and put the governance system in place, the decision-making system. Even the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, Article 18 recognizes that Indigenous peoples have a right to decision-making through their own Indigenous institutions and through their own procedures. Right. And bands and band councils are not Indigenous institutions. And, um, you know, band council resolutions are not Indigenous procedures. Right. It's the people that have the right of self-determination, not band councils. Right. And, and so even AFN and the band councils across Canada aren't respecting that part of the United Nations Declaration, even though they're demanding the governments, you know, implement. They're well, we not doing it. We so we need to focus internally on our own, our own people, our own communities, about how to organize to get out of the Indian Act on our terms, not on Ottawa's terms. Absolutely. We can't That's do that without having the information because the court has put the burden of proof on us. And inevitably, if we make a move off reserve, we wind up facing court injunctions and we wind up facing police. And that's just not in the Haudenosaunee communities, that's right across the country. Yeah, it is right across the country. And uh, I think it's, it's a national system that we're up against. It is. and. You know, we all have our own systems of governance, and then um, right now, like we are uh, reclaiming that power. Like there are, like I'm Turtle Clan. We have our Turtle Clan family things that we do, and we talk and we communicate, and we're really building that up, huh? And I know that other clans are doing that as well. So I can see this going um, not just in Six Nations and Tainanag, but I, I can see it going across the country with families building like that and re, yeah. re reasserting their sovereignty and saying, listen, this is who we are. This is what we believe. And this is actually truly what's right. Canada, you're breaking the law. 
but you know everybody likes to throw around that term free prior informed consent but, right but they're not focusing on informed right and informed means information exactly and so that's where we need to collect that information to make the plan because they never uh, to when we get into conflict we're going to need that information um you know basically we have empty arrow quivers and if we want to put some arrows in the quiver it's got to be that information exactly and uh, and, and not only just to use for either negotiation or, or going to court or defending ourselves in court if we don't want to go to court we wind up getting dragged there but also to go international you know yes. because if you want to make a complaint internationally a human rights complaint or uh, get involved in any of the other united nations uh, fora um you're going to need to bring your evidence with you as to how the crown or how canada's treated your your people yes absolutely um yeah i it's just such a monstrosity how like how even when you're going back from the very beginning um to when we started about occupations up till now how we're talking about um, the legislation and different things like that you can see how it's historical even before canada was formed or the united states was formed that they just tied in their words to uh like you said ban us from little things every so often each and every way all the way up until they can finally try to assimilate us and it's our responsibility to know that not to have that knowledge because knowledge well, of power the indian act was the first termination plan and really they're just trying to finish off what the indian act started right now right and so, um that's why I say, Bill, getting back to Bill C-15, the, the UN uh, Declaration Act that they want to pass, um, they want to be able to say, instead of Section 35 of their Constitution recognizing that it has to be consistent with international law, they want to say the UN Declaration has to go under Section 35 under Canada's Constitution. And if they, if they succeed in passing that law and interpreting the UN Declaration uh, through a Canadian definition, that's why we call it CANDRIP, yeah. because it's it's the Canadian Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, because they're defining it. It's not the UN Declaration right. that was adopted in New York City at, by the General Assembly. And so under this Canadian definition, um, they're going to use their domestic framework that they've been working on for the past five years to interpret all, all 46 uh, articles of the UN Declaration. Uh, for example, Article 3 talks about the right of self-determination. Well, if, if they get away with what they're doing, Article 3 is going to become implemented through the self-government policy, where it will become basically this ethnic Indigenous government, fourth-level government in, in Canada. Um, okay. And the land sections, Articles 26, 27, 28, will be their land claims policies, you know, like their specific claims policies. Right. Uh, so they'll get away with, you know, nothing, this, keeping the status quo intact and not not evolving to recognizing that Canada has to change to be consistent with international standards. Because the UN Declaration is not legally binding, but there are articles in there that, that um, you know, reflect international customary law, like the right of self-determination. Because what it does, the Declaration connects us to the international covenants on civil and political rights, and education, social and cultural rights, where it says all peoples have the right to self-determination. So the right. declaration confirms that indigenous peoples are connected to those declarations. So we have an international right of self-determination, but that self-government policy that Kretchen imposed, which is still in place at the negotiating tables, 
does not recognize, uh, you know, any uh, international law sovereignty at all. It says it right in the policy. You can look it up. Right, and that's that's on purpose. Yeah, because they but, know. You know, they put money in there, and that's how they get people to agree to to uh, compromise their position and accept a lower position of political and legal status in the Canadian Federation. Right. That's and what I, the groups have signed modern treaties like the James Bay uh, uh, in Quebec, uh, the Dene in the Northwest Territories, the uh, Yukon First Nations, the Nishka, the Manoth in BC, um, the Tawasan in BC, they've all signed modern treaties, you know, agreeing to be basically fourth level governments. And they're taking a pan-Indigenous approach too. They're lumping us in with the Métis and the Inuit. And uh, right. we, have, we have a different situation, a different history. Like, for example, the Inuit. Most of the Inuit have settled their land claims. Um, the ones in what used to be the Northwest Territories, because they split it now. So it's now it's called Nunavut. And they were arguing for public government. They weren't arguing for self-government. So they're, they've gone for public government in Nunavut. Uh, yeah. So they have a different situation. But Point is, they, they've defined their Section 35 rights, so they have nothing to lose by Bill C-15 passing because right. they've already agreed on how they're going to be part of Canada. And um, the Inuit in uh, Northern Quebec, they signed the James Bay Agreement in 1975. They're still kind of sorting out their self-government issues, but they settled their land issues. Same in right. uh, Labrador. You know, they've, they've settled the Inuit over in Labrador. Um, so they've got a different situation. They've got nothing to lose with those C-15 passing. And the Métis, well, the Métis, um, you know, basically it was uh, the Supreme Court of Canada and the Pauli decision that said the Métis have the rights to hunt. And none of the previous federal governments, you know, took any serious consideration of them having Section 35 rights until the Trudeau government came along. Right now they're happy because they're being recognized that they have Section 35 rights and they're negotiating self-government with them. But you know, there's going to be issues over land between First Nations and the Métis because the Métis are claiming First Nations lands. Right. Um, but I mean, that's the pan-Indigenous approach that Trudeau is taking in this too. And AFN has been silent. They didn't say anything about these ten principles. They didn't do any analysis for the chiefs, let alone the people. They didn't do any analysis when Trudeau announced in 2018 he was dissolving the Department of Indian Affairs and creating two new indigenous departments. Right. And and this is rolling out now, and our people don't even know the implications of that. You know, the Haudenosaunee communities don't know. All the communities across Canada don't know what that means to have an Indigenous Services Canada Department and a Crown Indigenous Relations Department. Right. They just the way, the way I see it, though, is. The Indigenous Services Canada is there to maintain service delivery on reserve under Section 9124 in the Indian Act yep. until they can get you to sign a Section 35 agreement to move you over to the Crown Indigenous Relations Department. Right. You know, and, um, you know, then you'll become this fourth level government under Crown Indigenous Relations implementing a, a Section 35 agreement that you've signed. Right. That makes complete sense the way that uh, you laid it out like that, described it. Well, it's like a conveyor belt, right? Like you said, band by band, they're moving you from here to here. And right. once you're here, they can dissolve the Department of uh, Indigenous Services Canada because you will have signed agreements to deliver services under the terms of these self-government agreements or under this alternative federal legislation. 
And at that point, nobody will be left under the Indian Act, so they can get they can repeal that too. Yeah, they can tear everything away from you, and you know it's a it's really it's genocide <laughs> is what it is. And and I don't know. I've talked with other people. You know, they introduced this idea of a ten year funding grant. We don't know if that ten year represents the horizon that they want to do the deadline that they want to do this in. Might be more like a target than the deadline, but. Um, they might be looking at 10 years trying to get everybody to sign agreements, section 35 agreements, you know, within a 10 year span so that, because um, once you sign a self-government agreement, you're no longer on the 10 year funding grant, you're gonna be under a self-government fiscal policy. And that's where the own source revenue kicks in in taxation. Right. And they're working on a new funding policy now, but it's still, um, it's still based on own source revenue. So that's how you're expected to run your governance systems and your delivery of services is through that um, self-government fiscal policy and through self-government agreements, you know, to basically be these fourth level governments. Right. So it's like, okay, you can run yourselves, but you're still going to run yourselves our way. (laughs) Well, the way I describe it, it's like um, the Indian Act is an old antiquated jail cell, you know, falling apart, rusted, been in place since the 1800s. And they want us to negotiate into a new jail cell with a chrome toilet, maybe even a kitchen thrown in there, but okay. it's still a jail cell. Exactly. It is. That's true. And, and, and most of the band councils in the country see that as a step forward and are negotiating at tables to, to put those deals to the people. The thing about those negotiations are secret. They're having these recognition tables, they call them. They're having discussions. Those are secret. Yeah. The purpose of those discussion tables is to come up with negotiation mandates but the federal and provincial negotiators have a veto over what they're gonna to take to the cabinets. Uh, and it has to fit with the self-government policy or they won't agree to get a negotiation mandate going. They have modern treaty negotiating tables and they have self-government negotiating tables. So they got like three categories of tables they're running. Um, but it's only once an agreement is reached, uh, a legally binding agreement in principle or a final agreement that they want them to sign they have to take that to the people and get it voted on and and, uh, ratified in a referendum. But what the government has been doing is they've been setting the the voting threshold to like 25% of the band members. Right. That's That's how they're getting these agreements adopted. And basically it's the Department of Justice running all this, right? Because they're looking at, okay, if this agreement's challenged in court later, um, can we say that it was agreed, consented to by the group? And I guess they've determined that 25% is sufficient to convince a white court that, yes, they consented to this, Your Honor. I think how to vote on this state, and here's the people that voted. One of the reasons that could be is because they know that there's um, an amount of traditional people that won't vote in the first place or even go out there to vote. Well, you're thinking locally. Yeah. You got to think nationally. Right. There's 630 bands in Canada, and they all don't have their traditional systems aren't exactly operating some some have basically become extinct because yes. the indian act has taken over for generations right and some people haven't kept up with their ceremonies and their traditional governance systems right remember what i said in 1928 they made it illegal and for some communities you know in, in the more northern areas it kind of disappeared right that's true like you mentioned that and it does remind me that about maybe 25 years ago, 20 years ago, we were still doing our ceremonies in houses in people's living rooms or basements. <laughs> yeah, that's probably where that came from because uh, 
you were especially close to Ottawa, so you had to be even more careful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I think uh, Ottawa sat themselves right on the doorstep of the Mohawks for a reason, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they got the big air base, right? The largest one in Canada right outside us, too. We're surrounded by huge federal government, all the Mohawks everywhere we are. It's all yeah. federal government. And it's defensive things, it's political things everywhere. So it's not, and it's not a mistake either. Well, they got the Iroquois caucus they're dealing with. Mm -hmm. So we can not find the Confederacy. All, so we can find all of your content online. You have a website, right? Yeah, rustibo.com. And then you can go over, you can follow you on Twitter. You just, make sure you turn on like turn on the notifications for your stuff because um, I turned it on and I think it's great information that everybody needs to get out there. Um, you have your Facebook page as well. Uh, yeah, truth I have Russ Dibble, uh, Truth Campaign. That's my public page. Perfect. So um, we'll get everybody to head over to that. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to add? It's been, I noticed we've been here for a little bit more than an hour now. <laughs> I blame that on you. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> it's just such good information. I couldn't help it. I got to get as much as I can out of you. So. Well, uh, I think people should be aware we're organizing the campaign against the federal uh can drip bill C-15. Um, we're looking at ways of um, getting the, the opposition to that bill. See, they only took six weeks of selective engagement before they introduced bill C-15, the UNDRIP Act into uh, what they call the UNDRIP Act into um, parliament. Yeah. And they didn't talk to the people. Um, they talked to select chiefs organizations like AFN and, and regional chiefs bodies. And uh, they're doing the same thing that they did in BC when they passed the BC, they passed the BC under, where they, um, they, um, they negotiated with the BC Leadership Council and there's 203 bands in BC. And so all the members of all those bands they didn't even talk to them and they didn't talk to all the chiefs when they passed that law. So most people out there don't know the implications of what Bill 41, the UNDRIP Bill 41 are gonna mean for them. And even after they passed that law in BC, they invaded the Wet'suwet'en territory, totally ignoring it. So that, and when Premier Horgan from BC was asked by the media at that time, um, what about this UNDRIP law that you guys passed? He said, well, it's forward looking, it's not retrospective. So that right. shows you that the government's going to, the provincial government's interpreting the UN declaration the way they want it to, to go. Right. And so, and so if Bill C-15 passes, the Trudeau government's going to do the same thing. Absolutely. No accountability on their side ever. So keep, keep uh, aware of our campaign to stop Bill uh, C-15. It's, it's a big fight because the national organizations, the First Nation, AFN, the Métis, and the Inuit organizations support it. Um, regional organizations, mostly the ones involved in modern treaties, support it. Because, again, like I said, they have nothing to lose. Um, you've got church groups supporting it. You've got human rights groups supporting it. They don't seem to care that the government never came to our people to talk to us about how do we feel about the UN declaration and how do we want to see it realized? Does it have to be a federal law or can be there other ways to deal with our self-determination, you know, recognizing it? Um, but they don't want to do that because they have an agenda, right? right. And all these other groups supporting Bill C-15 don't seem to care that the people have been bypassed. So we're going to have to organize the people. 
And what I've said to our team, because we have three networks involved, we have the Defenders of the Land Network, and yeah. Kanahus Manuel from the Tiny House Warriors is the spokesperson for that now. Uh, her dad and I were the ones that helped set up that network. Um, I don't know more. They're involved. We're going to probably have a web page, a website on, or a page on their website uh, for the campaign, the Stop um, Bill C-15 campaign. And um, I'm I'm going with the Truth campaign because I ran for national chief in 2018, and I called it the Truth Before Reconciliation campaign. Yep. Trudeau wanted to talk about reconciliation, but he was bypassing the truth of how we got into the situation, you know, the right. colonialism. So I'm still, you know, I wasn't running in the AFN election to win, but to use it as a platform to expose that the liberal government is a threat to our rights. Yep. And I, um, I said I was going to continue the campaign on, which I've been doing as a public education and advocacy group. So the people in the truth campaign are people that helped me on my campaign. So that's the network I have. So our three networks call ourselves the Indigenous Activist Networks. And we're the ones behind organizing the Stop C-15 uh, campaign. That's excellent. So, I'll make sure so we I... will be getting information out there. And I guess the last thing I'd say is one of the things we're looking at doing, because the federal government's negotiating termination agreements with band councils using Zoom calls during the pandemic. Yep. And AFN held a virtual chief's assembly using basically was like a huge Zoom call. Yeah, uh, I've told our team we may as well use the technology to start linking together people on Zoom calls to discuss C-15 and to document our opposition to it and the fact we don't give free prior informed consent to it. And then we have to arch archive those somewhere. And also added to that, maybe use declarations or petitions to give written expression to opposition so that we have evidence to show that uh, we're opposed to it, that we weren't, you know, consulted about it or, you know, uh, talk to about it and um, we're against it. So we wanna use that evidence on AFN and the chiefs and um, you know something we can even send to the United Nations to say, look, we documented our opposition to this bill. They bypassed us during a pandemic. During a pandemic, yeah, exactly. So that's obviously shady moves all the time on behalf yeah. of, I'm gonna make sure that all of the links for uh, these that you've mentioned are on the uh, in the description so that people can find you easily. I'm gonna make sure it gets out on Twitter as much as possible because that seems to be like you said, we're starting to take advantage of our technology more and more. Um, so well, you're doing that, Andrew. Yeah, <laughs> well, I wanna make sure that I get all those voices out there. You know, that's why I started beside the track so that everybody can get all of those different perspectives from different nations, different people all over the place, you know, so. Um, yeah, well, now I'll go for, the, for the, your work, it's good. No, communication is the key they're they're using it on us we got to use it back on them exactly and it's been a real honor speaking with you today and i want to thank you again it's been an excellent excellent conversation yeah yeah yeah